Blog Talk Radio. Listen, for those of you that are going through, for those of us that are waiting on His promise, understand God has not forgotten you. When times get tough, you got to look up to heaven and encourage yourself and say, Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the Abundant Solutions Hour. Our goal is to help others be more, do more, and have more. I'm your host, Gregory Turner. And I'm your co-host, Brian J. Henderson. Brian, it, it tried to stop us tonight, but it's not going to stop us. I hear that. Technical difficulties, that. hey, it's just, you know, we do everything by faith anyway, so this is nothing new. That's right. Right down to the last second. <laughs> but Brian, tonight's show is going to be tough. It's going to be tough. I've been praying about it since we've talked to uh, our guest last night, and I've been conversing with her uh, through emails, and uh, I'm telling you this is going to be a tough one, but this is something that needs to be done. And God didn't say everything will be comfortable. Some things will be uncomfortable to make change or to cause change. And if anybody's listening tonight, please pay close attention to what's being said because it could easily happen to you. Yes, yes. You know, Greg, as I think about, you know, life in general and and the topic that we're going to discuss, I thought about how um, diamonds are formed. And, you know, when you think about how, you know, nobody ever really thinks about how a diamond is formed, but a diamond is just basically minerals that are put under such immense pressure for, you know, a large amount, a long amount of time, and then they're shaped and formed. And when they first, when you first pull them out of the ground, they don't look like much. But you know, as someone then molds and shapes that diamond into what it's, you know, until it's shiny form, to the form where they put it in a jewel, you know, nobody really thinks about what that diamond, what that rock, what that mineral had to go through to get to that point. You know, they just see the end result. You know, and like our guest tonight. She's going through and continues to go through this forming, this shaping into what God wants her to be and into what God wants her to do. And she's on a uh, on a one-woman crusade. Well, I would say one woman plus her family. But she's on a crusade to fight a terrible injustice that not only has affected her and her family, but also affects millions of other people around this country. You know, but Greg, I want to start off tonight also, um, like with, like what we've been doing for the past couple of months, and just telling people to remember the folks in the nation of Haiti and their families as they continue to work through the devastation in Haiti. In Haiti, remember them, pray for them, give if you can, donate your time, your talent, your treasure, you know, but make sure you also give your prayers to them because they definitely need them. But, Greg, I want to go ahead and bring in our guest because we got so much information that she's going to cover. And I want to make sure we give her as much time as possible. Tonight's guest is our special guest and best-selling author, Margaret Brown. It should have been a routine traffic case. James Dawson was stopped for speeding and arrested for driving on a suspended license. He was taken to jail. Behind bars, he died. 
allegedly by super, by suicide. And, and, folks, this is a tough one for us tonight, so you have to forgive me. I, I get a little emotional when I, when I just think about, you know, what we're going to cover tonight. But, but James was an upbeat young man, opposed to all thoughts of suicide. So his sister Margaret embarked on a relentless search to prove a cover-up in her brother's death. And she quit her job of 23 years to investigate his demise. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome to the Abundant Solutions Hour, Ms. Margaret Brown. Oh, thank you, Gregory and Brian. I appreciate you guys having me on your show. I thank really you appreciate so much for coming on. Yes, thank you so much for coming on. Thank if you, guys. You would, yes, if you would, Ms. Brown, tell us the name of your book. The name of the book is As I Travel Through the Valley of Death which entails my journey. Mm, what a journey. Yes, you know, it is indeed. After talking with you last night, I, I, I tell you, I immediately had to uh, drop to my knees and pray because I, I, it, stuff like this, it makes you want to ask questions, not so much to society, but you want you want answers and you want God to answer your questions right away. Um what happened uh, to your brother when he was arrested? What what was the what what did the police officers tell you or the chief of police or whoever? What did they tell you? Okay, as he was stopped on I fifty seven, the state police t- took him into the Cumberland County Jail, and when he arrived inside the Cumberland County Jail, now mind you, he was only stopped for a traffic citation, a suspended license. He had never had any brush with the law. No warrants, no prior arrests, nothing. This was his first experience behind the walls of a jail and the last experience of his life. So when he arrived inside the jail, they stripped him of all his clothes and personal belongings, issued him a prison uniform, and placed him inside a cell for detainment purposes only. Once they placed him inside that cell, he was not given the opportunity to make a phone call. They stopped him at 11.20 p.m., He did not call the family clock. He called my mom at 2.17 a.m. exactly to let him know, to let us know what happened to him and to give us the directions to the jail. But because he stopped on a suspended license, he was unable to post his own bond. So someone had to come to post the bond and to get his vehicle due to the suspended license. So since it was that late at 2.17 at night, he just gave up gave my mom the directions to the jail. He even gave the officer in the booking area the phone to confirm the direction. So him and my mom had talked because my mom, she does not drive, so she has to make arrangements with the rest of the family so we can, you know, get to the jail. So my, my brother told her, well, mom, since it's so late, just wait till daylight, you know, so you guys, you know, can be aware of your surroundings and know where you're going. So as soon as 8 o'clock, 8 o'clock that morning, my mom sent the grandchildren off to school, and my mom, my brother Steve, and my son Michael Brown headed for the jail. Now, normally it's a three-hour drive from Chicago to the Cumberland County Jail, but this particular day it was raining so bad it delayed their trip a half an hour, so they didn't get to the jail until 11.30. Once they arrived at the jail, paid the bail, went inside to pay the bail, the clerk who took the money told them that they could not wait inside the jail. They had to go back outside to their car to wait on my brother to be released. 
They explained that the release process would take about 15 minutes, you know, and they couldn't understand then if it's only going to take 15 minutes for the release process, why would they send them back outside to wait in the car? Okay, so they followed the instructions, went back outside to the car to wait on my brother to be released. Forty-five minutes went past, and they're sitting in the car looking at the clock like, why is it taking so long? Next thing you know, the same lady who sent them back outside to their car come running outside to their car and tell them, due to a medical emergency, the release is taking a little longer. Not one time did she tell them that the medical emergency was my brother. So, again, she, the, the clerk who came to the car, she goes back inside the jail. So my family, them, they're still sitting there waiting for my brother to walk out of the jail. So the ambulance pulls up, and the next thing you know, a couple of minutes later, my brother's being carried out of the jail on a stretcher with tubes inserted inside of him, and he only have on his drawers and his underwear, I mean his underwears and his socks. So my family noticed that there was their loved one being, you know, on the stretcher, and they get out of the car, and they run over to the stretcher, and they ask the paramedic, well, what's going on? What happened to him? So my mom grabbed his hand, and his hand was already ice cold. So by his body temperature being that cold already, he had already been dead for a while. But they had to set the scene up, you know, because they wouldn't let him wait inside the jail. They sent him out to the car. They, when, when, the, when the clerk come back out to the car, she don't tell him that it's my brother. So they have to watch him coming out of the jail in this condition. And the paramedics wouldn't even talk to them. When they questioned them and asked them what happened, they didn't say anything. They just told my family to follow the amber lamp to the hospital. So naturally, again, they're following instructions. They're following the amber lamps. Amber lamps don't have on any sirens, just flashing lights. And, and the, the local hospital is 37 minutes away. So they're following the amber lamps. They're not speeding, you know, because usually if it's an emergency, you're flying down the expressway. They're not speeding, so they're going to speed limit. My family following them. And before the ambulance could even get to the Sarah Bush Hospital, another ambulance was waiting with this light flashing, and the ambulance actually stopped to converse with this other ambulance. There's no way during a medical emergency have I ever seen an ambulance, a paramedic, stop to converse with another before they reached the hospital. So my son, he gets out of the car and asks them, well, what's going on? What's, why are you guys stopping? So they proceeded and went on to Sarah Bush Hospital, which my brother was pronounced dead on arrival. So, again, that's another red flag to let you know he was already dead anyway. And they showed us that because they wasn't even rushing. And for you guys, I mean, you know, for the paramedics to even have the audacity to stop to converse with another and knowing my family is, is following you? I mean, come on, let's be real. To me, that was totally disrespectful. So once the family arrived at the hospital, the emergency, the paramedics, they were finished things. Like I said, again, they, they never conversated with my family. The emergency room physician is the one who came to inform my family that my brother was dead. They allowed my family to go back in the room to view his body. So before my mom and my brother went into the room, my son asked the emergency room physician, can he go in the room alone to be with the body? He said, sure. So my, my son asked him, well, how did my uncle die? And the physician told him, well, we were told that he hung himself with a shower curtain. So, you know, they talked for a few minutes, and my son was like, okay, well, I'm going into the room. He goes into the room, and the first thing he does is examine my brother's body. So he comes back out and he tells my mom and my brother, he said, wait a minute, you guys got to come and see this. They're telling us that he hung himself with a shower curtain, but there's no marks on his neck. How can he hang himself and there are no marks on his neck? 
So my mom and my brother goes in there, and they examine, examine his body. My son and my brother even went as far as to go to the local store to purchase a disposable camera to take pictures of the neck. So God was working with us from the beginning to the end until now. It, 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 was just ama- it was just amazing how that process went because I was just thankful that my family and them didn't have to go to the morgue to identify the body. They were blessed to be able to travel right from the jail to the hospital with the body, which most families don't have that blessing. You know, they receive a phone call and they have to go to the morgue. But we received the blessing to be able to be right there to witness everything, to view his body, mm-hmm. to notice all the red flags. You know, the the, the thing that's just so, I, mean, I can't even find the word to describe what I want to say, but <laughs> it's, it's what's so crazy, I, I guess if I could find a word, I would say the crazy thing about it is that you know, anybody that knows anything about medical procedures would know right away that if the lights are flashing on an ambulance, that means the person is was dead before they got in the ambulance. Mm-hmm. Because they put the flashing lights on as a reminder, as, as sort of like a, a beacon to tell everybody, hey, look, this is someone who has passed on. And so the fact that they that the ambulance did what they were supposed to do, you know, and you all, of course, may not have may have not have known that. Right, we didn't. You know, most people don't know that. I actually know that because my neighbor had actually passed away. She had a she went into a diabetic coma and died. And as the ambulance was leaving, they had the flashing lights on. And I asked the other paramedics that were still on the scene. Why aren't they hurrying? And they said, well, she is, she's already gone, but we didn't tell them yet. So don't right. say anything. And I'm like, wow. Oh, yeah. You know, and, of course, they didn't want to tell the family because they didn't want to put the family in a panic. Right. You know, and so it's, it's, it's standard procedure that when, you know, because they don't want to go and, you know, fly up the road, but at the same time they don't want to alert the family. So they put their flashing lights on and they drive. Right. And most people assume, okay, they maybe maybe they have that person stable. And the other red flag that I'm sure you guys may have not have known is that typically when there is an emergency, they will let a family member ride in the car if that person is alive. I mean, mm-hmm. they'll ride in the ambulance. Right. With that person if the person is alive. Yeah, they wouldn't let us get. I mean, they wouldn't let my family get nowhere near near the ambulance. But what did? But what happened when you tried to question the authorities as far as trying to find out the exact cause of death? Was there an autopsy? Yes. Um, at, when my 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 family was at the hospital, and after the emergency room physician informed them that my brother was deceased, uh, the coroner arrived. And he told my mom, he said, due to the nature in which your son died found hanging inside the jail cell, that it is the law that his body be sent to Springfield for an autopsy. So my mom, you know, she was like, you know, she didn't want the body to go to Springfield. She wanted A.R. Leakes to do everything, which she knows those people up there at that general home because, you know, they, they are friends to the family. And they told her, no, you, that can't be done. It has to be done in Springfield. And once Springfield completes their autopsy, 
then licks can come and get the body. So they said this this is a law. This has to be done this way. So um, again, the family, you know, they stayed in there with the body for about another hour, and they came and took the body away. So uh, I called once they came back to Chicago and told me about the coroner. I I called the coroner's office and I asked them, "Well, when are you guys going to do autopsy?" They said tomorrow, the next day. I said, "Well." Would it be possible for me to attend? He said, no, we don't have family members. No one can attend an autopsy. I said, okay. He said, well, we will call you as soon as the autopsy is complete to let you guys know what you can do from this point. So they called us the next day at 12 o'clock noon, told us the autopsy had been completed, and we could have AR Leaks come to pick the body up. I personally called AR Leaks, gave them the information that the body was at the Memorial Medical Center in Springfield. A.R. Leaks took that three-hour trip all the way to Springfield, called us back, and told us and asked us, were we sure the body was at the Memorial Medical Center in Springfield? Because they were unable to locate the body. So with that, we were like in a panic, like, what do you mean you can't find the body? So they don't receive the body until the next day. The next they came all the way back to Chicago and then went back to Springfield a second time the next day. So when they get the body the next day, I say, wait a minute. I say, listen, we need to have an independent autopsy done. They say, Margaret, that's not free. That costs $975. I say, I don't care how much it costs. It's already too many red flags being flown anyway, so we need to find out what's really going on. I want an independent autopsy. I went and got a money order. I didn't even get a check, no credit card, money order. Let's do this independent autopsy. They did the autopsy the next day. The independent pathologist called my mom's house, and when I heard the phone drop and I heard her scream, I knew something was wrong. So I went in the kitchen, picked up the phone, and I continued talking to the independent pathologist. And he told me, he said, Margaret, we, we reopened your brother's body, and there's absolutely nothing there. He has no organs, no tissue, no brain, no blood. Nothing is here. It's an empty cavity. Then he asked me, well, was your brother sick or anything? I'm like, no, he was not sick. I said, the only thing he ever had was common colds. Other than that, he was a healthy young man. There was nothing wrong with him. So he said, well, I'm sorry to tell you there's nothing here. <laughs> so I'm like, oh, my God, what do you mean there's nothing there? So I immediately called Springfield, asking them, questioning them about what happened to my brother's organs, what happened to his brain, what happened to his blood. So it took at least about a month before they responded to me. I had to send them certified letters. Every time I would call them on the phone, they we'll call you back, we'll call you back. I said, that's not, that's, that's totally unacceptable because the body is not done. I mean, you know, we're not rich. We're not going to be like Michael Jackson and keep the body up for two, three months. You know, the body has to be buried within a week. So once you bury the body and then try to have it exhumed, again, that's more money. So now I have to sit here and wait on all these answers and nobody is trying to answer me. So we hired an attorney from Johnny Cochran's office located in the Chicago area, and he took the case, and he held the case for four months, and then told us there was not enough evidence for him to even start an investigation. I was like, but during the time while he had the case, I was still compiling my own personal evidence. I still didn't stop. I was still sending certified letters to the hospital, certified letters to the coroners, and they were, which was a blessing, they were sending me letters back. So all of this is documented in my book. This is not just what Margaret is saying. This, these are the official documents from the jail, from the paramedics, 
from the office of the coroner and from the Sarah Bush Hospital. All their documents are in my book, which they are telling us what happened. So back to the coroner with the autopsy, he tells me in his official document, which is in my book, that this is the normal standard procedure doing an autopsy that they take everything and cremate it. I'm like, well, how can you do this without notifying the family, without authorization from the family? Isn't that illegal? And he told me no. He said they have been doing this for the past 50 years. This is their normal standard procedure. I'm like, you guys have got to be kidding me. Now, let me ask you a question. <laughs> yes? Once you found, you know, because I'm sure you found out that that wasn't standard procedure. Yes, I did. Now, did you did you know did you contact like any other coroners to find out uh, if that's what they did or if that was something that was a regional thing or a or a local thing? Every coroner that I contact told me that was the first they ever heard of that. Wow. Because you have to leave something in case there has to be a second opinion. Right. Now when you presented that information back to um I'm assuming the coroner um, or did you present that information back to them? I don't know. Let me let, let me ask this question. When you started to present your findings, what kind of response did you get? Actually, everybody was waiting on everybody else. When I my first thing when I we had the attorney from um, from uh, Cochran's law firm office, he was doing his thing, but he didn't really have any contact with us. His his the investigation was, like, private. Every time I would call him, he was, you know, Margaret, well, I'll get back to you, I'll get back to you. Which, of course, we're anxious. We we really want to know what's going on. So when I started sending him my evidence, and I'm like, well, why don't you have this? I have it. Why don't you have it? And you're the attorney. It's like, Margaret, we're going to get everything together. You have to be patient. You know, this takes time. And I understand all that, but I just didn't feel like we had time. I was... I mean, you know, I know things can't be done, you know, just like that, and it does take time. But at this point, because I knew my brother so well and I knew there was no way in the world he would have taken his own life for what, a traffic citation? I said, no, 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 we we, we have to move fast with this. And then, although he was still holding the case, I was still going other places. I went to Rainbow Push Coalition. I met with Mark Allen, who was the field director there. I went to NAACP on the south side branch of Chicago. I went to their office. I even went had a meeting with Eugene Pincham, which is a judge. He's deceased now. And every avenue that I traveled down, they told me that there really was nothing they could do, and I just could not believe that. I'm like, how is it that I'm sitting on all this evidence presenting it to you guys, and you actually tell me that you guys can't do anything with this? So that is what prompted me into writing my book. Because all my life I always believed that justice will be served, which is not true. (laughs) Not in all cases it will not. Sometimes justice will be blind, and they don't want to see. I I don't know if they don't want to see or what the situation is, but... It was just an unbelievable experience for me because I'm like, if I can see all of this and you guys are professionals, why can't you see it? Let me ask this question. You know, do you think it was because 
once they found out that the that the body had been cremated, that the possibility of the evidence was now gone, and so that because they didn't have any true evidence, that there really wouldn't wouldn't be much of a case. Right, right. I think that's what did it. Once they cremated all the internal organs, they didn't have anything to go on. But still, my thing is that okay, they said that he hung his, hung himself. Although they said he was partially hanging. And he was when the correctional officer came to the cell that he found him hanging with his feet resting on the floor, and he could have just stood up to save his life. Regardless of that, if he was found partially hanging or hanging, there should have been some kind of ligature mark on his neck to confirm that a hanging actually existed. So by there being no marks on his neck, how could there have been a hanging? I understand that they couldn't do anything because of the missing organs, but you still have the external external evidence, the neck. Right. So that's what I was trying to base, base uh, you know, my theory on. It's the neck. You still have that outer evidence. If they tell you a hanging and no marks on the neck, there's something wrong here. And everybody documented an abrasion on the chin and no marks on the neck. Well, who, who so, did the investigation? They had an investigating officer from their district, from the jail, which was uh, Kelly Hodge. He was the investigating officer, and he's an, a state police, a special agent state police who did the uh, investigation. And the hurting part about him is that when my family arrived at the jail, because they had to go back to the jail to get my brother's personal belongings, the correct, I mean, the uh, investigating officer was there. So when my son told the investigating officer where we're going to hire, we're going to, because he was questioning my mother, and my son told the um, investigating officer, don't talk to her anymore because they're going to talk to their attorney. And what gave him away, he told my family, there's no need to contact your attorney because these people are are my friends. And I can assure you there was no foul play involved. So with that statement, I felt like, you know, he was biased. He shouldn't have even been investigating because if you ain't friends, you go go by what they saying anyway. Exactly. So I, I I asked them, well, can you guys get another investigating officer or something? And and they told me no. And said he was already assigned to the case. So I had even explained to to them what he had told my family, and they was like, well, you know, that's irrelevant because he was already assigned to the case. That's not irrelevant. You know, how can you just a, a, a lawyer defending defending your mother or defending your loved one. I mean, you, 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 someone else should have taken the case, but they they let him keep it, and and his conclusion was the final result: uh, hanging by the neck, suicide, and no one challenged it. So that's why I wrote the book, and all the evidence is in my book. So that's why I say I was blessed to be able to outline the book, everything that happened from the jail to the hospital to the office of the coroner whereas my readers can draw their own conclusion. You know, they can read the book and they can, everything is right there. It's not what I'm saying. It's all the documents that they sent me that are in the book. Hmm. Wow. Your, your mom. So we had, an un, we had an unfair advantage from the beginning. Wow. My heart goes out to you and your family, especially your mom. Yes, yes. That's just so oh, hard. Yeah for a mother to know that her child was treated less than a human being 
and to see and to hear people uh, people that you know that's being trust trusted by the American people or whoever in that, in, in Chicago or wherever this this happened. These people are elected to uphold the Constitution. Right. I, I just don't I, I just don't understand how someone can be so cold. I, 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 what do you think happened? Do you think it was a, a race issue, or do you think it was? But what do you just think? What do you think? I believe because when I questioned the uh, investigating officer at the uh, coroner's inquest, I asked him, uh, "Were there any other people arrested that night on the same night that my brother was arrested?" And he told me there were seven other people. So my next question to him were, were they all white? Because my brother was the only African-American inmate, uh, well, I'll just say being held in that jail that night. He and seven other people were processed that same night, and they were all white, seven other white people, and he was the only black. So um, he tried to explain to me that it was not a race issue because my brother was placed in a cell by himself, which, again, that's just what they say. You know, we don't really know. We don't really know what happened, but by him being brought out of that jail, only wearing his drawers and his socks, me personally, I think that he was raped and poisoned. And the reason why I say poisoned because my son had noticed that it was some white formation coming out of his mouth. And they had even documented that on his medical records, that when the correctional officer went to his cell, she saw white formation coming out of his mouth. So once I heard my son say that and then I read it in the report, I was like, wow, that sounds like poison. So if he was poison, then they would have to get rid of the organs because if a second autopsy is done, then you would see that he was poisoned. So I, 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 that's how I draw my conclusion that perhaps he was poisoned because they say that uh, someone at 7 o'clock uh, had served him breakfast. So uh, I don't know whether he ate the breakfast or whatever the case may be, but even with that, from 7 o'clock and my family arrived at 11.30, for him to have been that cold, I just, it's, it's, it's a mystery. It's a mystery what my brother had to have gone through inside that jail, just being right. detained there for traffic violations. Right, Brian. Oh. We have a we have some callers on the line right now. We have about okay. five minutes left into the show. Uh, Brian, do you want to go to them? And we're definitely going to come back, but we definitely don't want our callers to uh, hold on that that long. Okay. Yes, let's go to the three one two area code. Caller, you on live? Three one two area code, you're on live. Maybe they're just listening in. And next, let's go to the caller in the 954 area code. Caller, you're on live. 954. All right, they're listening in as well. All right. guess it's kind of tough to ask questions. In, in in a situation like this, let's go back to um, when you went to the Rainbow Coalition. Mm-hmm. Now, I know we talked a little bit about this last night, but tell us a little bit more about what happened when 
you went to them for help? When I went to Rainbow Coalition, I met with Mark Allen, and I sat there and I talked with Mark for about two hours, and he was explaining to me. Well, actually, he had went and got a stack of letters, and he had shown to me where people had written to them in search of help for their loved ones who was found hanging in jail. And I was telling Mark that I was under the assumption that this was just an isolated incident that happened to my brother. I never realized that this has been going on for so long and, and, and this has been occurring and you guys have a stack of letters like this and you can't do anything about this? How, how can this be? So he was trying to explain to me that they just get so much and he's the only one working and it was just unbelievable. And I had even went on WVON talk radio during this time with Monique Carradine and people were calling in, same same thing, saying that this has happened to their loved ones. And I was, it was just unbelievable to me because you know I I think when I think about lynching and hanging, this something in the past, way way back in the past. You don't think that this is still happening this day and age in the 21st century that they still doing this to black people, and you know, and getting away with it and using it as a cover up like they killed themselves. And when I sat there and I talked to Mark, he was compassionate. He listened to me, but he was still unable to help me. He still could not assist uh, assist my family in any kind of legal form. And that was amazing because I'm like, every time you look up, you see them when, when something is – I actually feel like since it was not a high-profile case, then this is why people were not jumping on the bandwagon, the, the – um, Rainbow Push and NAACP. Now, had it been a high-profile case that was constantly in the media, in the medium, I guarantee they would have been right there, right there, getting a ten five minutes of fame. They would have been right there. But since it was a case that they had to dig into and had to put a lot of work into it, they just left it alone. You know, just left it alone. Figure, you know, another person gone. Well. It's not going to bring them back. It's not going to do anything for us. It's not going to make a name for us. So, you know, <laughs> good luck. <laughs> so, and that, that just really hurt me to my heart. But, okay, now, Mark, he was, he was, he was all right. He was compassionate. At least he sat there and he talked to me and he explained the situation to me. Now, when I went to NAACP to Mr. Sethum, I was, I was in his office no longer than 10 minutes, and I told him that I had just met with Eugene Pitchum. And he asked me, he said, well, what did Mr. Pitchum say? I said, well, he's supposed to get back with me. He said, well, I'll tell you what, when he gets back with you, then you call me back. And I couldn't believe it. I'm like, are you serious? I actually left NAACP in tears. I said, you mean to tell me what, in order for you guys to even listen to what I have to say, that it depended solely on what Mr. Pitchum was going to do? You've got to be kidding me. He told me, he told me to call him back. When I heard back from Mr. Pentium, I was I was I was just too outdone. Like I said, every avenue that I went to, the doors were closed in my face. They listened and they shut the door and that was it. Wow. wow. And I just couldn't believe it. I said, Well I tell you what, <laughs> once I get everything documented, I'm gonna write a book and the whole world will know about my experience. Because this is amazing. This is amazing. There's no way that an injustice like this should have happened and no one wanted to touch it. There's no way. 
uh, I would have felt uh, better if, if somebody even attempt to help us, but no one even attempts. And like I said, I can understand because they got rid of the organs, but you still have the neck, the neck issue. What what year it still was has this? To be some kind of marks on the neck. Yeah, what year was this? When did this happen? This was in two thousand, November the sixth, two thousand. November sixth, two thousand. And as of today, you're still hoping and praying that something will be done. That's right. That's why I wrote the book. I said because all the evidence is in the book. Everything that you need is in that book. Wow. And once you read that book, you will see exactly what I'm talking about. Where 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 can people buy the book? Where can they find it? The book is available on Amazon.com, and it's also available on, at BarnesandNoble.com. BarnesandNoble.com is cheaper. It's twelve dollars <laughs> and ninety-two cents. Give us the name. Yes, and give us the name of the book again. The name of the book is "As I Travel Through the Valley of Death" by Margaret Brown, Margaret Dawson Brown. Okay, I see we have a caller that uh, is chiming in. I want to get them back in. Caller from the nine five four. You're on live. Oh, I was just going to ask her what was the title of the book, but she just answered. Okay. Yes. Caller. Yes. Caller, are you surprised that that she's not receiving any help at all? Basically, yes and no. Actually, I have a degree in criminal justice, and actually, I graduated from FAM, and I. Doing my studies at FAM, we study a lot of cases about racist pro, um, profiling. And actually, I was a correction officer, and I resigned because I did see a lot of wrongdoing. Ruin, ruin actually, I was in the prison, and I can believe it. Wow. wow. This, this, this oh, is yeah. tough. It, yeah. It, this you, is Paul. really tough for you know, it's just tough. My, my, I'm just thinking about the mother. I'm just thinking uh, about someone. Uh, her child is just being, you know, was treated like, like trash, pretty much. You just with no feelings. And then when you try to get the help, uh, I'm just surprised that you didn't receive any threats or 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 anything of like that. Uh, but I'm telling you, I'm just, I'm just. I don't, I don't know. I don't know what to say, but it's it's a sad situation when yes, uh, human life means nothing to another nothing. individual that they didn't create. And one thing I can tell you, Margaret, tonight, the truth is going to come out. It yes. may be tomorrow. It may be six, seven, twenty years from now. Whatever it is, the truth will come out. God will bring it out. He's going to pull the cover off of this thing. And it's going to be ugly. Oh yeah, I believe that. I believe that. You don't get away. Yeah, you never get away from wrong. You never get away from wrong, and you can never right wrong. So, I tell you what, it it it's a sad situation. Again, uh, my heart goes out to you and your family, and I I just believe that you need to be as vocal as you can be, uh, fight, yeah. and, and just stay prayed up. We're all praying and and. Uh, on our end for you, and I just believe that uh, the truth will come out. Thank you so much. I definitely believe it will. Yes, we have another caller from the 773 area code. Okay. Caller, are you on live? 
Okay. I read the book, and I sat in a corner in three hours and read the book from the beginning to end. And with the evidence that's presented in the book, there's absolutely no way that they can just say that it was suicide. With everything that's documented. That's that's so sad. Uh, when you when you read this book, could you feel? I know you can't feel the same pain as the family, but did you feel uh, connected to this book and connected to this this horrible situation? Yes, I did. Wow. What would you because like to say? Yes, go ahead. I'm sorry. My heart goes out to the family. And for that family to go through the pain that they did, that's a hurting feeling. Yes. Yes. If anyone reads the book, it would bring tears to their eyes. Yes. I believe that because I'm telling you, I was almost at that point last night with Miss Brown and, and Brian. When we talked last night, it was tough. It was, I mean, it was on my mind all day. And I'm just trying to prepare for an interview. And this, you know, this family is dealing with something like this as if they're not human. And then that's the that's the hard thing to just for me to understand. That that has to be really really tough on the mom, on her mom and on her and her family. Yeah, it's got to be. Yes, it is. And I also believe that yes, uh, caller. I also believe that uh, as as you know, if we spread the word and put this out there, don't let this situation die, I think something will be done. Because it seems as if people are sitting back waiting to see what the media or what the public, what they're going to do. They're waiting to see what the reaction is going to be. But then you have yeah, most people one. that won't take the time to go through what this family did to get justice right. done. Right. Most people will give up. And when you have a family that's determined to find out what happened to their loved one, they putting everything into it. Yes, we are. Thank you, caller. Thanks. Thank you. Yes, thank you so much for calling in. Uh, that was really needed. No problem. Thank you. You're welcome. Margaret? Yes? What is your next step? Well, my next step is doing what I'm doing now, trying to get the word out to everyone, trying to get on, you know, programs and just spread the awareness, you know. And I'm I'm sure that God will put the right people in my life to make sure that action is taken upon what happened. I have no doubt about that. Like I say, God will reveal the truth. And the beginning was just for me to document everything and put it in this book. And this book has really done so much for my family. And like you say, especially my mom. She carries it, carries it around everywhere. <laughs> and she yeah. is so proud. And she yeah. is so proud because an average family cannot testify to that. Yeah. You know, like I said, I left my job of 23 years just so I can pursue this because I refuse to give up. I'm like, I'm giving up everything just so I can get this book together. Since we are not getting any assistance from anywhere, I'm quite sure once I have everything documented and placed in this book, 
that's it. And you that's have it. the you have the, the documents that you have are the documents given to you by uh, the state by the or, official. Yes. Yes. Yeah. These are they documents. Because even when Renee Ferguson did the interview, she did an interview on NBC Channel 5. I think I sent you the videotape of that. Even when she did the interview and I had gave her the documents that I had, she said, Margaret, I can't believe they sent you this. I said, yes, they did. So that's when she launched her own investigation and, you know, how everything, because she did a segment, uh, Breaking News on NBC Channel 5, and she did her own segment, which lasted for about five minutes, which was terrific. It was great. And she had interviewed the um, 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 AR Leaks, the uh, woman from AR Leaks, and another independent pathologist who concluded that there's no way he hung himself, there's no way suicide was the cause of death. And when uh, AR Leaks uh, discovered that all the organs, and was, it was an empty cavity, she was shocked because she had never seen anything like that before. So you definitely have to see Renee Ferguson's investigation. That's the key. And once she did that investigation, she told me, she said, Margaret, keep digging until there's no more dirt left. And that's exactly what I did, and that's how my book was born. So I definitely thank God for Renee Ferguson because she was, she was there. And she encouraged me. And she's just an investigative reporter from Channel 5. <laughs> mm-hmm. But she was there. I'll tell you what, you know, uh, as I think about it, and you have all this evidence, have you tried to go to uh, a different jurisdiction? No, not yet. I just, like I said, the book has only been out now for two months. Okay. And what, I'm doing great. I've sold over 1,600 copies. Yes. And that's just mm-hmm. online. But um, so I, 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 you know, I'm, I'm going to, a lot that I do have planned. But, you know, I just have to take one step at a time. Right. hmm So the first step was my book, and I got that done, so I'm ready. Awesome. So I will be awesome. presenting it to a lot of people, and I definitely thank you guys because this is my first interview. Yes. Oh, we're, we're yes, honored. Yes, I definitely so thank you for that, my first interview. Now, when... The family, uh, were the family ever interviewed? Did did the media ever come out to your home to uh, talk to No one but Renee Ferguson. That was it. Yeah, did they even do a story in the local newspaper? Uh, Yes, the uh, Final Call newspaper. The Final Calls, they did two stories. They sure did. That's in my book as well. Two stories that they printed Yes, and, and and how long was the the columns or the, the stories that they written, and was it true uh, with the stuff that they wrote? Or um, oh yeah, oh yeah, oh yeah, it was absolutely true. Because they they basically did their story on my interview, and they also talked to the investigating officer. So yes, the story were true, was true, and like I said, that's also in the book. Well, let me ask you, you've been hearing me talk so much about your mom. And the reason I, you know, I'm so zoned and focused in on your moms because I lost two brothers, and both of them took uh, accidents. Um, 
my parents had three kids, and I'm the only one left. So I, I grew up watching my mom and, and dad in in pain, and this was an accident. I, I can't even wrap my brain around uh, a child being murdered and no one not even caring. Uh, how, how is your mom doing now? Oh, my mom is great. My mom is great. My mom is great. My mom is doing great. And, and how are you? I know a lot of this takes a lot of your energy. I know it takes so much of you to... Uh, oh, yeah. It, it definitely it definitely took a toll on me, but I continue to pray, and I know God has my back because without God, none of this would have been possible anyway. So I am truly blessed, and I have every day I am thankful because I, I can look at others as I talk to other people that don't have the blessing that we have to be able to have a book and, and read about what happened to their loved one and have the world to read about it. So I'm just thankful that my brother was able to be a voice for the voiceless, and I'm thankful for that. So that would, that is what keeps me strong. Do you, it, it is, I mean, I, I want to ask you this. I mean, it's, it's probably going to be a tough question, and some may not understand, but do you have hate for the people that you think committed this crime? Do you have that hate in your oh. heart? Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Yes, I do. Because I'm like you. There's no way that any human being should be treated like that. There's just no way. And they were just so comfortable with the way they treated my family. Everything was done so normal. Because I asked them, well, did anybody seem nervous or did anybody, you know, they say everybody was just as normal, like it was just another normal day. And that's the part that hurts so bad because they actually felt like, you know, they were covering up and they were covering up for each other. And they were used to this. They were accustomed to this. This is what they do. So that's where my hatred comes in at. You know, how can you just do this and be so comfortable with it and just live with yourself like that, knowing you took a life? Wow. And that's it's just sad. It's just sad. Yeah. It's just yeah. Sad. I'm sure Brian has a question for you. Yeah. Okay, yeah. hey, Brian. Yes, I'm still here. You know, um, again, I'm 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 very rarely at a loss for words, <laughs> and you know, I just like like Greg said, I can imagine what your family went through that night. Oh yeah. You know, and what they continue to go through now. You know, what keeps you going? What keeps you, you know, continuing to fight on this journey? Well, my family, we all have strong faith and belief in God. And that's going to keep us going forever. That's going to keep us going. That's our energy right there. That's our energy. I, I tell you, with the writers that are coming behind you, people in your community, and I'll say this, a lot of people are watching you, whether you know it or not. A lot of people are watching you. And out of all of the family members that you have, and I'm sure you probably have a lot of family members, 
God yes, chose him to yeah, God chose you to take on this task because he knew that you were strong enough. And I know a lot of times you don't feel like you're strong enough to do it. You feel like giving up a lot of um, things are in a, in your way to block what you're trying to do. But he trusts you with this. Yeah. And, and I even question that. Because I couldn't understand it. I'm like, how is it that my siblings are going on with their lives and I'm just stuck? I'm just stuck on the day that my brother died and I cannot flash forward to the future without closure of that day. And I just couldn't. I prayed on it and I prayed on it. Mm-hmm. And I knew then that God had work for me to do in that book. So everything I expressed in that book is awesome. And like you say, it's an amazing journey. And I thank God for navigating my journey. And you hear, we hear on television all the time about things like this happening. But when it touches your home, it's a whole different, it's a whole different story. It's a Um, whole different story. Yeah. It's a whole different story then. Yes, and I'm and I and I'm sure you thought, my goodness, when am I going to wake up out of this nightmare? I know good and well this didn't happen to our right. Yes, but one thing oh, about yeah. it, God. Yes, one thing about it, God has not turned His back on you and your family. He's going to do. And I know what, that. Yes, He's going to do just what He's going to do. Oh yeah. Yes. Amen he, to that. He, he sees everything, and. Uh, Trust me, it won't go unnoticed. The people that did this, they, some of them may be dead and gone, but it's going to come out. It's going to show oh, yeah. He's going to bring it out. And, again, you know, Brian and I, we're just, I mean, we just, we're just praying for you and your family to no end. We're just praying and hoping that, you know, you continue to hold on to God's hand while you go through this because it is tough. It is oh, tough. yeah. But yes, it, it is. People. It's people like you that continue to fight. It's people like you that continue to fight that others are watching. People see what you're doing. Okay. Just don't go just don't grow tired to the point that you want to give up. Oh, I will never give up. I will never give up. My goodness. I I was on Facebook today and I saw a lot of people following you. I saw a lot of people reading and asking about the show. Uh, oh yeah, yeah. I saw that, and it you have a, a large following of people right now. So uh, yes. just continue doing what you're doing. Yeah, and you send this, this this broadcast out, and we're here to do whatever we can do for you. And, and again, we want you to give the information out about your book and where people can buy it. And again, give out the name of the book. Okay, again, the name of the book is As I Travel Through the Valley of Death by Margaret Dawson Brown. The book is available online at Amazon.com and BarnesandNoble.com. Brian, I think we have another caller in. Let's try to get another caller in from the 773. I see they're still hanging on there. I think they may want to ask a question. 773. Okay, I was just asking, with you two being the host, before y'all did the interview, have y'all even read the book? No, we haven't read the book. No, we haven't. Y'all haven't read the book, so y'all are not familiar with the book at all. 
No, ma'am. We're familiar, I, I'm familiar with Miss Brown. We, we've been talking uh, back and forth uh, for some time now. Okay. Because me, I mean, just to read the book, the book, like uh-huh. y'all say, both of y'all are at a loss for words. Yes. And to sit down and read the book would have you breathless. Oh, that was I'm going to get it. Well put together, and I compliment right. her on her hard work to endure what right. she did to write that book. Thank you, I appreciate that. And you know what, Carla? We I can hear it. In, we can hear it in your voice. We can hear it. We can hear the uh, the passion in your voice and the hurt. Uh, because when she reached out to me uh, not too long ago, I said, "Well, listen, we have to get you on. We we people need to hear this." Yes, they did. Yeah, and because of this, you know, people are going to, not just because of this show, but because of her being obedient and transparent. See, a lot of people will be embarrassed about situations like this, and they won't say anything. But she's not that one. She's being transparent and she's being bold because it takes a bold soul to do what she's doing. She's going against Absolutely. those uh, uh, society that says, uh, who cares? Who who cares? It's people like her that's stepping up to the plate, saying, "You know what? I'm not going to uh, sit back and l- allow you to right, do nothing this." Because, is being done. Yeah, because my father is bigger than any judge or any law enforcement official that you have out there. So uh, who can? If, if, yeah, if God is for her, who in the world can be against her? You're right, and she has my undivided support. And I have gotten people that I know they're in the industry, they're writing books, and for me to get, I put the book out there with them. Mm-hmm. No, this is what's going on. Yeah, this is a book some y'all need to read, and right. give me y'all feedback on it. Carla, does it does it seem real what you read? I mean, when you were reading the book, did you, it was unbelievable? Was it just, yeah, it was unbelievable. Brian, I don't know about you, but this has been the hardest interview for me. I'm telling you, it's it's draining. It's just pulling from me. <laughs> and when I'm not talking here, I'm just sitting here praying to myself. I I just need the strength to just to finish this interview. It's it's tough. It's really tough. Yeah, I've yeah. never read the book. I encourage y'all to get the book and read it. And y'all just doing the interview. Y'all have not actually sat down and read the book, but to read the book is. It's breathtaking. Yes. Brian, that was a book that I a... could not put down until I got to the end of it. And you read the book in one sitting, right? In one sitting. Wow. I couldn't put it down because I was just in the awful. I couldn't believe it. Miss mm-hmm. Brown, we're definitely going to have to have you to come back on the show. Uh, an hour is just not enough time. Okay, I most definitely will. To do this. And Carla, thank you so much for um, calling in and doing your part. I, I know you're going to do a lot more for her as far as spreading the, the word about the book, and we appreciate um, you doing that. But, Brian, I think we have less than a minute left. Yes, we do, and I want to uh, just thank Ms. Brown again for coming on and sharing with us because, I mean, I'm just blown away by that whole situation. Thank you guys for having me. Yeah. Yeah. And with that being said, you've been listening to the Abundant Solutions Hour. We thank you for joining us tonight, and we ask you that you join us again next week 
And also we ask that you share with uh, your friends our website, which is www.blogtalkradio.com slash ASE Motivation. We thank you. Good evening. God bless you all, and good night. Thank you, Ms. Brown. Oh, thank you, guys. Thank you so much. And I will keep in touch. Please do. Thank you. Okay. God bless. God bless. Bye-bye.